This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today... Thanks to uh, the benefit of wonderful subscribers and everyone else keeping us on the air, we have a couple of amazing guests on Backstory. The winner of the annual Stella Prize, which was announced last night at a gala dinner, a $50,000 award that honours Australian women writers, was announced. And the winner is Vicky Lavreau Harvey. She joins me later in the hour to talk about her book, a dark but beautifully told memoir called The Erratics. It was actually out of print at the time the book landed on the Stella Longlist, I believe, and everything about this book and the win is just extraordinary, I really have to say. So definitely stay tuned for that. But first, it all started with The Rosie Project, the much-loved romantic comedy following the brilliantly unique Don Tillman and his more-than-match Rosie Jarman. Now, author Graham Simpson has delivered the third instalment of the Rosie trilogy, The Rosie Result, which sees Rosie, Don and their son Harvey, oh sorry, Hudson I should say, return to familiar territory. In terms of geography, at least, yes, the family are back in Australia, in Melbourne to be precise, but they are about to face a whole new set of challenges. Graham Simpson will join me very soon to talk about this final episode in the lives that have become very, very familiar to his readers. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Triple R. This show is Backstory and I'm your host, Mel Cranenberg. Now, it's been about six years since the world was won over by Rosie Jarman and Don Tillman's hilariously enjoyable foray into romance in the aptly named The Rosie Project. A year later, the pair were back with The Rosie Effect, travelling to the US, navigating rocky career and relationship issues and having a son, Hudson. Now it's here, the third and final instalment, The Rosie Result. Don and Rosie have come back to Melbourne so Rosie can pursue her dream job, but things are about to get a whole lot more challenging. Don, a genetics professor, puts his foot in it badly at work and is up for a disciplinary hearing. Rosie is being demoted at work with her boss blaming her need to give more attention to their son, Hudson, and Hudson is is and the family are negotiating his autism diagnosis and what this all means for Don and the rest of the clan. Joining me now to discuss the rosy result is author Graham Simpson. Graham, welcome to Backstory. Good afternoon. That wasn't a paid promo, was it? Because it sounded <laughs> like it. It was fantastic. Look, I have to say, as many people are, are I've become quite quite fond uh, of Don, Rosie and the clan. I think we've all sort of, you know, gotten to know them quite well over the last six years. So this instalment was, you know, it was quite moving, I'm sure, for people who've become fans of the series. Talk, talk to me a little bit about this, uh, this series, because a lot happens in it. Um, again, like all of your books, it has a comedic element, but there's also also a very serious sort of undercurrent running through it. What's going on with the family uh, in this particular episode? 
Well, well, you asked about the series first, so let me just sort of bring that up to date. I mean, the first book, The Rosie Project, wherein Don Tillman, a man, uh, a socially challenged man who we've come to realise is somewhere on the autism spectrum, um, sets out to find the perfect wife scientifically. And it's a romantic comedy. At the end, he finds, if not the perfect wife, he finds a life partner. And that was meant to be the end of it. I mean, romantic comedies notoriously don't have sequels, Um Bridget Jones uh, being possibly the exception that proves the rule. But I had a lot of feedback from people saying, we don't believe that this guy would make a successful marriage. We don't think he could sustain it because he's too weird. And that that, offended me, really, because I know plenty of people a lot weirder than Don Tillman who've made successful relationships. And, in fact, I drew on those sorts of people to, to create the Don Tillman character. So I wrote The Rosie Effect, which is... Don struggling to make his marriage work. I mean, more so than Rosie. It's the sort of Nancy Reagan philosophy that marriage is never 50-50, it's always 90-10. And Don's pulling the 90, and and for that there are people who find the Rosie effect well, didn't endear them particularly to Rosie in that book. But Don was doing it, He, he pulls through, they get the child and then what people were asking for for a third book because when we talk about autism um, we tend to think of kids not not reasonably so necessarily because it's seen as a lifetime condition those kids turn into adults but perhaps they become better at masking it or they uh, they're out of the pressure cooker of school they can fit into society a bit more comfortably um, but they said we'd like to know what it was like for Don as a kid and they wanted a prequel and, and for me that was a problem because it would have been set in the 1980s and you know attitudes back then were quite different and we wouldn't necessarily learn anything about today or have anything we could apply to today but we had this kid coming out of the second book and it struck me that if we let him grow a little bit he could become don's representative in today's world Um, he could be the one struggling at school um, who was perhaps on the spectrum and the school now saying as they would today perhaps an autism diagnosis is in order which wouldn't have been said back in don's day and we could follow hudson's journey as don came in comedically to coach him into fitting in and in doing so don would go back and reflect on his own childhood. So those who wanted to see Don's childhood would get that, just not in real time. It's actually a really moving book in in those ways because I think, you know, Don is the classic sort of faulty narrator. He gives us enough of of a space to be able to see how other people might perceive him Um, and, you know, maybe his somewhat direct approach to communication, uh, which is really, you know, what endears him to a lot of people. He manages to cut through the BS quite a lot uh, by approaching things in a much more practical, direct fashion but you kind of really get I think from the Rosie project you see Don as someone who's very able he you know has a successful career he manages to negotiate the challenges of marriage Uh, you know he does really kind of you know everything really works for him to an extent that actually really shows you that he's a successful person but This is a book that really does expose the things that that Don has gone through that really, I guess, shaped him and and were really difficult, actually. And then to watch his son, Hudson, sort of face similar things where, you know, he's struggling to communicate and, you know, maybe find his place. But similarly has that hard-headedness that Don has where he actually feels as though his perspective is kind of right. So actually it's a a wonderful look at kind of non-neurotypical characters, both their strengths and their 
rare challenges that I think you've really managed to achieve here. Yeah, look, I felt in the first book I sugarcoated um, Don a little bit. And, and what I wanted to show in the second and third books, particularly this third book, was that his autism, because that's what we've decided it is, can, can get him into trouble and into quite serious trouble. I wanted readers to look at it and say, well, OK, here is Don doing something that I might not accept. And he actually effectively loses his job quite early in this book um, for what is perceived as a racist um, comment. And look, I think on the face of it, people would agree that this, this behaviour is not acceptable behaviour. Um, and we've got to say, are we going to give him a pass for this? Um, and I wanted people to think about these sorts of issues. Yeah, it's a really, it's actually quite, I ha- I'm glad you brought it up because it's quite a challenging setup. Um, and without giving too much away, Don does something that, that, you know, is quite egregious in one of his classes. It was well-meaning. He was trying to illustrate the opposite of what it was then perceived to be, which was kind of him being racist basically um, but it did not look good when uh, some students put these antics from his class up on social media uh, it then dogs him obviously he loses his job and effectively then has to account for for what happens and the social fallout of that at the same time his son is kind of gradually you know coming to his own realization of you know of an autism diagnosis and what that means and also I thought what was really interesting as well about this book is that Rosie who you know now has has, after being kind of the primary carer, the opportunity to pursue her own career is kind of faced with what we can only describe as, I guess, workplace misogyny uh, and also, like, you know, being challenged as someone who is trying to balance family and work. Um, you know, obviously this falls on her a little bit more than it has fallen on Don in this case um, as the person that has been the primary carer. And all of these things are really running together. How do you find the comedy amidst all of this? Well, it's how do you avoid the comedy amidst all of that? I mean, Don Tillman brings us the comedy. The comedy is largely character-driven. So we know that we throw Don into a situation and he's likely to do something unexpected. And it's not that we're laughing at him for being weird. It's that we are... Most comedy is based on the unexpected. Three people walk into a bar, the first two do something something expected and the third one breaks our um, our expectation. We don't need the first two walking to the bar because we know what conventional behaviour is. Don comes in and does the unconventional thing. And look, and sometimes we think, oh, wow, why didn't I think of that? That's the right thing to do. And other times we think, Don, what are you thinking? And we'll go and we'll see how that one, how that one plays out. Absolutely. I think, um, I think that faulty narrator voice that you've created is really strong um, in this and a necessary component of it because you still have to have that sort of understanding gap moment where the audience, you know, depending on, you know, where they sit on the, the kind of spectrum themselves and whether they're neurotypical or not, might identify more with Don or the characters that he's speaking with. Um, but definitely gets that kind of understanding gap and that's where you know where the humor can also be found and it's always laughing with Don I think that that's one of the wonderful things in the series that you've created is that at no stage are we laughing at his expense it's always it's always with him we've got a lot I've got a lot of autistic readers and in fact we've got about 100 copies of the book out to uh, movers and shakers in the autism community which has become much much more vocal much more activist since um, since the first book was published a lot of things have changed in that world and I was also listening a lot harder to that to that community this time around and both neurotypicals and autistic people find um, find the comedy in this, and the, the reactions are very, very similar. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I am talking to author Graham Simpson about his latest book, uh, The Rosie Result, which is the ultimate chapter in the Rosie trilogy that started with the incredibly successful The Rosie Project. I have to say on a recent overseas jaunt, Graham, I did actually see uh, the first two of the series uh, sitting on the shelves um, and I was quite impressed with the reach that this book has had. I'm sure you've talked about this almost to death, but, you know, this is the final chapter of the Rosie series um, and I do want to, like, kind of question whether or not it's the final chapter, but we'll get to that in a second. But reflecting on this as uh, as the final in, in the trilogy, how do you feel about, you know, where this series has taken you? Did you expect it? What's the ride been like? Look, I, I think the thing... Well, there's obviously been a, a life-changing ride because the first book enabled me to work full-time as a writer, which I hadn't expected. Um, but I, I think that the journey that writing the books has taken me on intellectually, if you like, has been really surprising. Um, and I think partly that's because of the changing attitudes towards us. Um, when I wrote that first book, I didn't flag Don as being, as we would have said back then, having Asperger's syndrome because it just wasn't something that was on my radar. I had probably worked with people through my life, studied with people through through my life who were on the spectrum and it just wasn't talked about it just wasn't as I say on my radar and now it's absolutely something you couldn't write a book like this um, without thinking about that on, on page one um, it's made me examine myself and whether I might be on the spectrum spoiler I'm not um, but um, and it's brought me into contact with uh, you know, that whole community, whole autistic community, which has been been fascinating and interesting. And I think the biggest thing I've got from the books, the most gratifying thing, has been the responses of individuals. You know, and books have changed my life, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised that my books might have changed other people's lives. Is it enough of them out there that statistically it's going to land? the right person at the right time but when people say to me I read the Rosie Project recognised myself and we'd often got an autism diagnosis and now, now I'm an activist my life has changed you, you're very conscious and very, very humbled to be honest about um, about what your book can do It's really interesting because I think uh, at the time you first wrote the Rosie Project comparisons were immediately made with Mark Haddon's book A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night um, equally for its uh, fault in narrator but also maybe for a character that you know could be deemed to be on the autism spectrum but there were a lot of kind of I think uh, people sort of you know drawing the blinds over actually coming out and talking about um, who the central character was in both books um, and talking more about autism. This book uh, the Rosie Result really redresses that. There's a lot of uh, conversation um, and done quite nicely. It's not, um, you know, this overblown exposition, but we're getting a lot of information about autism. Um, also, one of the characters, and I won't give away too much, uh, also talks about being on the autistic spectrum as a young girl uh, and that that's often an under uh, kind of diagnosed uh, situation so so girls often um, you know don't get the support maybe that they need so that's also brought up in this book I'm really curious to know how much research did you do to really get the realism running through this book and and you know what avenues did you pursue to get it yeah my, my standard answer to what what research did you do on autism has been 30 years in information technology um, and look the, the reality is for the Rosie Project, I was purely drawing on people I'd met. I'd read nothing 
on autism or Asperger's syndrome, bar, I think, what what you might just pick up reading the newspapers and so forth. And I read uh, John Elder Robeson's um, memoir, Look Me in the Eye, but not as research, just as something that crossed my path. And it was one individual story. I wasn't reading, we observe the following or these behavioural traits are common or anything like that. I think it was tremendously important because I was not writing Don out of a textbook. I was writing him the same way I'd write any other character in a book based on... You know, people I'd met, putting several of them in a pot, stirring it up, adding some imagination, but just part of the world that you know rather than something you read in a textbook that you don't know. And I think one of the great faults in a lot of the writing um, with autistic characters, particularly by neurotypicals, which most of it is, um, is that it's come out of textbooks rather than out of long-term um, knowing, knowing people. Yeah, and I think this is a wonderful kind of um, nod to the adage that if you've met one person on the autism spectrum, you've met one person on the autism spectrum. So Don is at first and foremost a unique character. And, and let me say, all these books and TV series and movies that we think about that say they've got autistic characters in them, count the number of autistic characters. And the answer is almost always one. Yeah. Well, I think you really redress this exceptionalism and it's really nice to, to kind of, you know, see a, a much broader sort of discussion of, you know, some of the, the challenges that people on the spectrum face, but also really having, you know, a definite hero at the heart of this. In fact, a few heroes um, that represent uh, people on the spectrum. Um, I really commend you for this book and this series. I have to ask, uh, what do you do now if you're leaving this world behind? And do you think fans are going to let you? I've got one more Don Tillman book. It's oh. not a novel, but um, my publisher has prevailed upon me to write um, the standardised meal system, Don Tillman's standardised meal system. So I'm going to do a recipe <laughs> book. It's always a recipe book that knocks me off the top of the charts. So I figure if you can't beat them, um, but it'll also have a little bit of Don's philosophy around the recipes and so on. So a last, a last hurrah for the series. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on that. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory and best of luck uh, with the next iteration of the Rosie series. Thanks very much, Mel. That was uh, Graham Simpson talking about the Rosie result, which is the final of the Rosie series um, that started six years ago with the Rosie Project. So definitely get your hands on that. Now, the Stella Award was announced last night. The winner of the $50,000 Literary Award for a book by a female Australian writer was... The Erratics by Vicky Laveau-Harvey. The author joins me shortly to talk about her book and the extraordinary story behind it very, very soon. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Now... It's been a long-delayed homecoming for Vicky when, after an estrangement spanning decades, she and her sister return to Alberta, Canada to take care of her elderly parents after her mother is suddenly hospitalised. What she discovers is a heartbreaking trail of paranoia, lies, gambling debts, neglect and her father a prisoner to it all. This is the true story of the erratics, Vicky Laveau-Harvey's dark but beautifully told memoir, which last night won the $50,000 Stella Prize for an outstanding writing by a woman writer in Australia. Vicky joins me in the studio now. Vicky, welcome to Backstory and congratulations. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm very pleased to be here. Now... 
I have to say I found out uh, while this was still embargoed yesterday afternoon and then madly scrabbled to get my hands on a copy uh, and I read most of it this morning um, (laughs) and I read it in one gasp uh, because it's just incredible in every sense of the word uh really the writing is beautiful but let's talk a little bit about the story uh of the book itself because that itself is a story (laughs) i understand that um that this book which i believe was originally published by fourth estate is that correct no it was originally published by finch 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 i see uh it won the finch memoir prize um and that was in 2018 so it was published Uh, in June of last year and then unfortunately Finch closed in December of last year so basically my book had six months of life and I was very sad that it wasn't going further and that uh, an independent publisher was going down basically not going to be around anymore but I had some champions I had fairy godmothers who were very interested in the book and now it is published again it's been brought out again by fourth estate Ah, i see now that's where i'm getting mixed up so it is out now through fourth estate which is an imprint of harper collins in australia um which is wonderful for all of us because uh, not only is it now a beautifully covered book um, it's wonderful but it's also available which uh which is Definitely, it was uh, an issue. Yes, yeah, it's it a was. huge recommendation. <laughs> this is one of those moments when I really feel like, how wonderful is it to have a prize like this that not only gives a writer an opportunity to obviously, um, you know, get a block of time. Let's say time and money yes. are, are very important in terms of being able to produce writing uh, to take that step out of day to day grind um, of you know earning money, but also to to get a book that really readers should be reading <laughs> back into print um, like this. It's actually, it's somewhat of a fairy tale. It's been a wonderful experience to have it sort of come back to life. And I'm delighted because, and the prize is something so phenomenal. I think the Stella Prize actually changes lives. It's a major change to have, uh, to have a, a block of time, as you say, to have no worries about being able to do your research, about being able to spend time getting into the next thing you want to write. It's a very wonderful gift. Now, I, I want to talk about the book itself, Vicky, because yes. it is just, the story itself is incredible. Um, I'll, I would love you to sort of set up the story in your own words a bit more. Yes, well, in 2007, my mother, who was almost 90, um, she broke her hip or her hip broke. I think that's more the way it happens. The hip joint goes and then someone falls on the floor and they say, you broke your hip, but basically you collapsed. She was hospitalized and my father found himself alone on this property in the country where my parents had lived since his retirement. And my mother had gradually isolated them over 20 years. And he found himself alone there. He was in very bad health. And we had had no contact, my sister and I, with our parents for almost 20 years. And, excuse me, and suddenly we were contacted by one of my father's bankers who said, are you related to these people? Because he's in dire 
straits with his health and your mother's in the hospital. Can you do something? So we went from having no contact with them for decades to being plunged back into trying to help them. They'd been living isolated on a property in the country. They weren't country people, but my father bought a property and he told me later that he had had to put 20 acres around my mother because that was the space you needed around her to make things livable. And that's why they were there. She's an extraordinary character, yes. your mother, as well. And she I, was. I'm trying to... I was trying to find an image in the book um, to depict her, and there are several, uh, but I, I did hit on one that actually wasn't a direct description of her, but of mm-hmm. her room. Um, and with your yes. permission, I'll read oh, this. Oh, please. <laughs> um, I sleep in one of my mother's bedrooms, the one where the mink coats are under the jaundiced gaze of a flat cheeked renaissance madonna with no eyelashes in a gilded frame the walls are bile green and the wrought iron carriage lamp light fittings dispense a yellow clarity that gives up and dies halfway across the carpet there are hats on shelves in the closet more mink right out of dr Zhivago. i can hear lara's theme in my head each time i go to bed and there are bally stilettos lined up on the floor long straight skirted dresses with set in sleeves pleated bodices and pearl buttons at the neck floating on hangers above them (laughs) there is something so ghostly in these descriptions and so horrifying but also this old world refinement um, that I think perfectly encapsulates this this character that's a very good quote that you've chosen because my mother was someone who was very cultivated she was a North American but she was cultivated she read widely she knew a lot of things she spoke French and English And at the same time, there was a kind of a disjunct with reality, which meant that when she had a dress made by the dressmaker, she got 10 of them in different fabrics, and they were lined up. It was ghostly. You looked in the closet, and you had the same dress 10 times, and the shoes underneath, and it was a very strange sort of atmosphere it really was i i think look i mean she's described in in the book by you obviously as um you know as reading uh isabella allende in the original spanish yes um she you talk about how you you owe who you are to her in many ways in in terms of you know having your sort of experiences of speaking multiple languages and Mm. um and exposure to culture but on the other hand she was clearly a very damaged person who, you know, obviously was abusive to her children yes. um, and to her husband in an extreme Oh, yes, she was. Fashion. It became more of an issue with age. Things compounded as she got older. and But she had always been this person. And it's true, her preoccupation with culture and with education and that sort of thing, opening the life of the mind gave me access to many, many things. At the same time, she lived vicariously through me and my sister. So anything that we accomplished, she accomplished. It was basically hers. So this made us, um, in some ways, not complete people. We were extensions of her. She definitely kind of... <clears throat> so sorry, I think yes, we're both losing our voices <laughs> Sorry. Here. She was something of a fabulist, really. <clears throat> but it's kind of incredible that uh, what she makes up about her children really, you know, kind of beggars the the belief of, like, of what she actually already has. Like, she doesn't... Yes. Her life is already so <clears throat> extraordinary in so many ways, and yet 
she kind of needs to live in this completely other world. Yes, yes. At one stage, um, I think, and it perhaps, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort to make herself the victim in a lot of these. Yes, these, there was. In, like instances. She... Um, has amassed these enormous gambling debts. Uh, yes. One of the, the most um, kind of vivid descriptions of this is when you sort of describe coming into the house and, and you know, looking at these incredible wardrobes filled with, you know, as you've just said, multiple um, iterations of the same dress, but underneath them are these shoe boxes, not filled with shoes, but filled with... Res- well, with Cancelled checks. Cancelled checks. Cancelled checks, Cancelled checks. Um, yes. This is such an interesting sort of... I mean, because obviously you then go in and try and sort of remedy some of these things. Yes, that's correct. What do you think was feeding this? Do you, There's a story underneath this that's kind of a, an untold story of her own perhaps childhood. Yes, and I think part of what happened with my mother was a feeling of not quite measuring up, of some kind of inferiority, even though she presented a supremely confident and superior sort of persona. She was quite haughty about who she was. I think underneath there was this lingering doubt that she measured up and she needed to prove that that was not true and this was one way of doing it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm talking to Vicky Laveau Harvey about her incredible book, The Erratics, which has just won the Stella Prize. And, and both Vicky and I are a little, <laughs> little so poorly, sorry. so you are going to be also <laughs> hearing quite... Oh, no, oh, my throat is um, not the best either. But uh, it is worth persevering because this is an incredible <laughs> book uh, to be talking about. Uh, I do... I kind of really wonder how you've addressed writing this because I, I really want to pause to talk about the quality of the writing here. Oh, thank you. Thinking, I mean, uh, there is uh, you know every reason why this book won the Stella Prize and the, the shortlist uh, that obviously of contenders for this prize is itself testament to just oh, the quality wonderful, of Wonderful writers. Excellent books all. So I, I really cannot recommend all of them highly enough. They're all fantastic yes. books. Uh, but the the writing and the way you've gone about it, I sort of, I've been trying to describe it to people uh, as, you know, Didion-esque, I think, is is what came to mind. Perhaps. That's very kind. Yes, I like that. It's sort of this sense of you're really covering this incredibly um, tough emotional territory, but in what I can only kind of describe as an underwrought way. It's, it's very, it's <laughs> yes, very I like restrained. That that's, that's very good. How have you done that? Because this kind of been the easiest thing to write about. And I know some time has elapsed since uh, the, the events in the book. But Well, still. I was writing the book uh, during that period, but towards the second half of that six-year period. And I actually finished the book a few months after my mother died. So I finished it yet the end of 2013 I think that you have to come at something like this story with a a position of a little bit of detachment I don't think you can do cathartic writing for this I mean you can always do cathartic writing for yourself but I really wanted to deal with the issues I had with this story elsewhere than on the page I wanted there to be enough detachment that I could look at it and structure it and think about the craft of writing it. And you do that by doing various things. You can climb a mountain or you can run a marathon or you can get some therapy. That's, you know, you do something. And you deal with your demons and then you see how you can put that story on the page so that other people might read it. And I think it's a different process if you're writing thinking 
which I wasn't really, that I would have readers, but I thought if someone were to read this, they don't really want to know that, you know, all of my really personal reactions and states of mind, I mean, those happened and they underlie the book, but I wanted it to be about telling the story and about the more universal themes, which were about having aging parents, having mental illness in a family, and the questions of what effect did that have on you as a child, for example, which is a question I ask myself a lot. I'm a certain kind of person, and would I have been a very different person if I had had a different childhood? It's, a, it's such a complicated um, oh, yes. <laughs> terrain that you're addressing. And I think one of the things that I noticed throughout the book was in lieu of actually, I, I guess, the overwrought emotionality that was really warranted in a book like this, you've kind of imbued all of the landscape with, you yes. know, that that sort of eerie sensibility that I guess, you know, that, that kind of really tells the story of the trauma. Yes. The house is, you know, both wonderful and horrible. The The landscape is cold and distant. Um, there's just this... But very, very beautiful. Very beautiful. Yes, yes. There's this really complicated kind of um, imagery that you've wound in that kind of shows you that that in so many ways you can't escape your family and uh, particularly a family that have given you both good and bad elements in your life. I think which I really believe, Melissa, is true of everyone. I think every family is complicated. It's the definition of a family, really. And you get good things and you get less good things. But I think the landscape, for me, that was like a character in the book. And it's very cold and it can be very forbidding. And I particularly love the Rocky Mountains, which can be extremely forbidding. They're huge, they're cold, they're dark sometimes. But that's the landscape I saw when I was a small child, when I was a toddler until I was about eight. And it is very, very beautiful. And at the same time, it has surprising figures in it, like the erratics, which are a series of boulders deposited by glaciers millions of years ago. And I thought, yes, there are erratics in this landscape. I do sort of want to leave on on that note because I think that of all of the the kind of imagery in this book, the the description of the erratics, which is kind of on the um, the inside leaf yes. or the inside few yes. leaves of this book, uh, really do kind of kind of set you up for what's about to come um, and just to give you a little sense of that tens of thousands of years ago the Cordillerian ice sheet snaked down the east side of the Alaskan Rocky Mountains through what is now the province of Alberta in Canada and into the US state of Montana as it moved it deposited giant rocks called the erratics along its path these form what is known as the foothills erratic train one of these huge boulders sits in the foothills a few miles from the Canadian town of Okotos, Okotoks. Okotoks. <laughs> Okotoks, a landscape of uncommon beauty. Countless years ago, the Okotoks, yes, Okotoks. erratic, fell in on itself and became, became unsafe to climb upon. It dominates the landscape, roped off and isolated. The danger it presents to anyone trespassing palpable and documented on the signs posted around it. Yes. Why did you decide on these particular features? Well, this is a very surprising feature because this landscape that I love so much is rolling grasslands. They're called foothills, rolling up to the Rocky Mountains, gradually becoming more wooded 
But to the other side in the east are the plains of wheat, which are flat, and then things begin to roll. But there are no geological features. There aren't large boulders. There's no rock. And then suddenly you come upon this really bizarre rock formation in the middle of the grasslands. And it's surprising, and it's forbidding, and you wonder, really. And this one has, it was kind of rectangular. It fell in on itself. It looks dangerous. And I just thought, I was driving by, and I saw the sign saying, Okotoks erratic, and I thought, boy, that's a gift for a writer. <laughs> this is a this is a gift uh, for any reader, I oh, have to say, so much, Vicky, Melissa. on that note. Um, the erratics, which uh, I am still in the midst of finishing, I have to say, it's been a, a wonderful foray, um, and obviously uh, filled with you know all of the the possible kind of elements one could imagine in a in a kind of family story, uh, and so much more. Um, Vicky Laveau, Harvey, congratulations again. Thank you so much, Melissa, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. That was uh, Vicky Laveau Harvey, author of The Erratics, which is the winner of this year's Stella Prize announced last night from an incredible uh, prize list. You'd be very happy to hear it is now out through Fourth Estate. Uh, uh, I... Um, HarperCollins imprint. So it should be available in most good bookstores, uh, which is a wonderful thing for all of us. Uh, I also spoke earlier this hour with Graham Simpson, who has just put out the final in his Rosie series. The Rosie Result is now out through text. Three Triple R. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website, or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.